Well, many, many months ago, as I was uh, planning and preparing for uh, preaching through the Pentateuch, uh, I figured I didn't want to just on a Saturday night say, I think I'll preach the Pentateuch, and so I did a little planning. And as I was working my way through Leviticus, I felt like I wanted to take one message to give an example of applying the Old Testament law to a New Testament, a New Covenant context. Um, because very often we, in, in the church, go to one of two extremes. We either, on one extreme, completely ignore the Old Testament, or on the other extreme, we are legalists and we uh, pick and choose and cherry-pick some laws that we really like and we apply them to us without uh, any consideration of covenant context at all. And so as we've been flying through the Pentateuch at a pace, uh, often several chapters at once, Tonight is the night that I wanted to just stop and do an example. And so as I was searching Leviticus for a great example on how to understand uh, the, the theme of holiness in Leviticus and how that applies to New Covenant people, we came to Leviticus 19.28. And I just thought this would be, and I rarely use this word in the pulpit, but this would be the most fun verse um, for us to go through and it's not so much because of this one verse, although I am eager to share its truths with you, but it is because of my concern that Christians in general don't often know what to do with the Old Testament, especially the law portions. And so, as the one who has the privilege to shepherd you from the pulpit, not only am I trying to give you a working knowledge of the Pentateuch, that's always been my hope in this series, I want to perhaps, hopefully, give you a model or an example of how to think about the law of Moses in light of the fact that we're not bound by the law of Moses, but we're also told in the New Testament that all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So we have to take those two principles and put them together. I think if you can properly interpret the law of Moses, I believe that a, a whole new world in your walk with Jesus Christ will be opened up. Now that blossoms before you, a, a world of centering your life on reflecting on the holy character of God because the, the law of Moses is based on the character of God. And if you understand how to handle the law as a Christian, then you are now delving into God's character at a deeper level. So tonight, since Leviticus is centered on the concept of holiness, I want to talk to you about holiness and new covenant people. So I have two purposes for tonight. The first one, as I said, is just to go through an example of applying the universal principles which are built into the law of Moses. The law is based on God's changeless character, therefore the principles never change. And then the second purpose is to give us a reminder of the characteristics of God's new covenant people, of which we are members. And so I thought this would be a great verse, since both the main topics of this verse are, are a little bit uh, edgy, and both have major cultural implications for us today, and bring up some questions for us. So we are looking at Leviticus 19, verse 28, which simply says, You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead, or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Now I've mentioned that there are two extremes that we can go to, a, a blind, non-thinking attempt to keep the laws we like and ignore the ones we don't like without regard with, for covenant context, or a total disregard for the law of Moses, as if the Old Testament really has nothing to say to us in principle. So we don't want to fall into either of those mistakes. 
But before we really get rolling, uh, tonight, among other things, we are talking about tattoos, because the text does. And, and so this is not a topic we've just picked out of thin air. It is something that the Word of God addresses. So just so you know, our conclusion tonight is not going to be either tattoos are great and fine with no conditions or thought, nor is the conclusion going to be tattoos are expressly forbidden because they're certainly not forbidden in the law of Christ. Rather, what we want to do is think about the principles behind the verse and the new covenant implications. Now, it is 2019, almost 2020, so I'm aware that in this room right now are probably hundreds of tattoos. In fact, let's show some. No, we won't do that. (laughs) So here's my deal with you. Let's start on neutral ground. And regardless of what conclusion we come to tonight, all tattoos prior to tonight don't count. We'll just grandfather them all in. Uh, You don't need to roll down your sleeves or hold your head funny or anything. You will receive a resurrection body, which, by the way, will leave all your tattoos behind anyway. Both those received prior to salvation and after salvation. So, what we'll do tonight, and it's almost more of a Bible study, I want to build our time together around some questions. Two big questions, and then the same set of sub-questions under each one. Here's our two big questions, just based on the two topics in this verse. First question, what does the law about self-cutting mean for me as a New Covenant believer? What does the law about self-cutting mean for me as a New Covenant believer? And then the second question, what does the law about tattoos mean for me as a New Covenant believer? What does the law about tattoos mean for me as a New Covenant believer? We'll save that one for last. And let's, let's look at the first question. What does the law about self-cutting mean for me as a New Covenant believer? Now, you may recall that in one of our introductory messages um, to orient ourselves to the Pentateuch, I gave you a series of interpretive questions to kind of aid you in understanding the meaning of any part of the law of Moses. So we're going to use those exact questions again to walk through these two big questions. So here's our subset of questions under the first question. What does the law about self-cutting mean for me as a new covenant believer? So the first sub-question, the first little question is, what kind of law is it? What kind of law is it? Now, we said in those introductory messages that we disagree with the categorization of laws as civil, ceremonial, and moral. Those are completely made-up categories. Those categories divide the law into relevant and irrelevant, and so we reject that. This was an attempt made by theologians going back to the Middle Ages to determine which laws stayed under the New Covenant and which laws were now obsolete. And so that was the way they got around that seeming problem. But Hebrews 8.13 says, In speaking of a New Covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Not obsolete in its holiness, in its holiness, not obsolete in its power, not obsolete in its usefulness, but obsolete as far as being the primary covenant under which God's people operate. We can, however, make some useful divisions under the framework of all God's law being relevant, not binding, but certainly relative and authoritative as far as life and practice in principle. You don't have to try and remember all these. I went through these before, but I, I want to I wanna just walk through what kinds of laws we could choose from as you're asking the question, what kind of law is it? There are some useful divisions here. I'll just go through these quickly. They're intuitive. They're logical. You can come up even with your own labels. 
There are some we could call loyalty laws. Loyalty laws are laws which demand loyalty and allegiance to Yahweh alone. For example, Exodus 20, the beginning of the first of the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's a loyalty law. Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And then there were laws we could categorize as criminal laws. They specify offenses which are contrary to the functioning of a community. Laws against murder and theft and immoral financial practices. Those are criminal laws which are inherently immoral in and of themselves. And then you have what we might call case laws. Case laws describe how a specific situation should be resolved that doesn't seem to have an immediate black and white right or wrong to it. For example, Exodus 22.6 says that if a fire breaks out, the one who started the fire has to make restitution. That's a case law. And then you have a, a plethora of family laws. Family laws very clearly regulate family relationships, family roles, as far as how husbands and wives relate to one another, how families relate to their children, and so forth. You have, and these are the easiest to identify, sacrificial laws. Sacrificial laws regulate the how and the when and the why of the various sacrifices. And then you have symbolic laws. Symbolic laws describe the system of clean and unclean. And we looked at this in detail last week. They're not necessarily moral or immoral. It's just a standard God has set up to provide object lessons to Israel to remind them that they're different, that they're, they're set apart. Leviticus 11 through 15 gave a detailed description of the clean and unclean things. God's prescription is to be ceremonially clean before worshiping him. So there's symbolic laws that symbolize their holiness, their set-apartness. And then these are easy to find also, sacred calendar laws. Sacred calendar laws establish the weekly and annual rhythm of Israel's life in relationship to Yahweh. Of course, at the top of that list is the weekly Sabbath, annual sacrifices and festivals. And in the final category we could identify, and there's various ways to do this, we could just call compassion laws or compassionate laws how people in the community are to treat one another. And so with these categories, you have the idea here of obeying the Lord in every way possible. Every aspect of life is covered. And so verse 28, how would we identify, you shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves, I am the Lord. We would identify this under the category of symbolic law. Symbolic law, law which speaks of being different and set apart. It's not necessarily a, an issue of moral or immoral. It's just different. Is it always, 100% of the time, immoral to cut yourself? No, it's not. Sometimes you have to do that for a medical procedure. Is it always, 100% of the time, immoral, inherently, to stick a needle in your arm and leave a, a dot of ink? Is that inherently immoral? It's not. It, it's just simply a way that the Lord has now set them apart. Now, remember that all the Israelites had grown up surrounded by and saturated by the ancient Near Eastern Egyptian culture of polytheism, multiple false gods. 
And God is quite literally giving them now an entire different way of living, a different way of even viewing the world, viewing themselves. And I thought a good way for us to understand what God is doing for them is to to move farther ahead into the church age. Imagine if a whole group of people in the community who had never read the Bible, never even heard of Jesus Christ, never been around a Christian, never been influenced by Christians or by the church, if suddenly they all came to faith in Christ and formed a new church made up completely of brand new believers who had no conception of how to live holy and separate lives as followers of Christ. Can you imagine the work set before the pastors of that church? That would just be a nightmare for these guys. Well, that was exactly the situation in the church of Corinth. And 1 Corinthians is basically a letter by the Apostle Paul to these baby believers trying to encourage them to stop living like their former selves and start following Christ in daily practice. And for example, one area in which their former pagan practices were infiltrating their lives immediately was in the area of sexuality and marriage. Some of them had been so steeped in pagan sexual practices as part of uh, ornate rituals in, in the pagan god system that they became paranoid of being like their formerly sexual immoral selves so they weren't giving themselves properly to their spouses. They just said everything sexual must be evil because it's associated with my past life. And so Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 7 and gives a, a clear delineation of what is appropriate for marriage. And since they didn't have a clear conception of God's design for marriage in which the husband falls under the headship of Christ and the wife falls under the leadership of the husband, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, he uses a well-known practice of the time, the practice of head coverings. Head coverings for a wife which said, I submit to and I follow the Lord's commands regarding marriage. And Paul calls these head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 10, a symbol of authority. It was a symbolic gesture which served as a reminder. And by the way, he gave the men a symbolic gesture as well, which our culture still today picks up on. Verse 4 of chapter 11 said that the man was not to have his head covered when he prayed as a reminder of his submission to Christ. I've seen men who don't even believe in God take their hats off when somebody starts praying. They don't even know they're obeying the Bible. But both of those were simply a symbolic gesture to remind you of a greater internal reality. And so this law here in verse 28 falls under that symbolic category. It's, it's not inherently moral or immoral. It's just something to remind you of the greater separation, the greater holiness issue which the Lord is calling us to. This is an issue in which the faithful Israelite could obey but not because the law is describing something inherently morally wrong, but because of what it represents. So that leads us naturally to our second question concerning the law of cutting. It is a symbolic law. Second question, what is the purpose of this law in Israel's context? What's the purpose of the law in Israel's context? So we have to start where they are. And if you recall, we said about purpose that we're asking questions like, what kind of situation was this law designed to prevent? What was it designed to promote? Who would benefit from this law? What values or moral principles are underlying this law? What's the point? What's the objective? And we said, for example, that the law in Exodus 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. Is that to say that all human death 
at the hands of another is against God's law. No, that's not the point. That can't be the point since there's 19 different ways to receive the death penalty in the law of Moses. Rather, the point is the sanctity of human life and God's authority to him alone to take human life using human agents to do so should he so choose. And so you you ask that question, what is the point in their context? Now, in Israel's context, why would God say, you shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead? Well, in their time, ritualistic cutting in mourning was very well known in the ancient Near East. An epic in the Mesopotamian tradition, it's a a long poem called The Curse of Agade. It's written about the time of Abraham, about 2000 B.C., This is about the mourning of the people of a whole city after their god, Enlil, destroyed the city. And in one portion of the poem, it describes how the people were grieving in that city. Quote, its young women did not restrain from tearing their hair. Its young men did not restrain their sharp knives. What were they doing? They were cutting themselves either to appease the offended god, Enlil, in their grief. More likely, though, to try to get the attention of another God who might come to their aid. And this is important for us. You have to remember that the conception of a God in the ancient Near East, the the, the idea that the person had in his mind was totally different than our conception, our right conception based on the word of God of the one true God. The ancient Near Easterner believed that his gods were not particularly interested in his daily affairs. In fact, one of the hopes of a, of a pagan God worshiper was to kind of fly under the radar and occasionally get away with doing some wicked things without his God even noticing. And so people counted on the fact that their gods were not omniscient, were not all-powerful. They certainly weren't all-knowing. They weren't everywhere present. And so that sounds good when you want to do wrong, but when you need help, all of a sudden now you need a way to get your God's attention. And so the worshiper now had to convince his God to become interested. And we see a clear example of this right here in our own Bible. You remember the great spiritual battle in 1 Kings 18 in which the prophet of God, Elijah, went head to head with the hundreds of prophets of the false god Baal in the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember what, that, what happened there? Contest was very simple. Whichever God miraculously burnt up an offering was the God that Israel should serve. And what did the prophets of Baal do? 1 Kings 18, 28. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them, trying desperately to get the attention of their deity. And I think this is one of the funniest verses in all the Bible. Elijah mocked them. In verse 28, this is my paraphrase. He said, maybe Baal is on a trip. Maybe he's taking a nap. Maybe he's in the bathroom mocking them because they couldn't get the attention of their God. And what did Elijah do then? He simply prayed. And 1 Kings 18, 38 records, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was on the trench. Oh, by the way, Elijah poured water over everything just to prove God's power. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. He proved himself God. Later in their practice, in their history rather, people in Israel would still be falling prey to the pagan practice of self-cutting. 
After the fall of Jerusalem, Jeremiah 41.5 describes 80 men coming to the ruins of the temple, having shaved themselves, torn their clothes, and cut their bodies in mourning. In the same way, Jeremiah 16, verse 6 says that after God's judgment of the nation, both great and small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried and no one shall lament for them or cut himself or make himself bald for them. In other words, the mourners were still in violation of Leviticus 19, 28, cutting themselves in an effort to get Yahweh's attention. As if Yahweh was merely one of the pagan gods of the nations. No wonder the Lord finally judged them. So that's what's happening in their context. So here's a third question we could consider. What now is the universal principle found in this law? What's the universal principle found in this law? Well, a follower of God doesn't need to act out to get God's attention. We don't serve a God that needs us to jump up and down and get his attention, to let God know that we're in mourning, that we're in despair. Consider Psalm 139 and the psalmist description of God's total sovereign omniscience and omnipresent involvement with each of his people individually. And this is worth taking a moment to read. Just listen. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. Doesn't this sound different than the pagan gods? If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, meaning his mother's womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. And listen to this. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Isn't that completely different than the idea of a God whose attention you have to try desperately to receive? The faithful Israelite didn't need to act out in order to get God's attention in a time of mourning and sorrow and pain because God is all-knowing, God is everywhere present, He's all-powerful, He's all-loving, He's all-kind. And so that would bring us to a fourth question then, understanding that principle How do we understand this law in a contemporary context? How do we bring this forward to ourselves? How do we understand this now and today? Well, the Old Covenant context is a nation, a theocracy in which these laws are binding. This is the governing force of a society. The church of Jesus Christ is not a theocracy. We're not a nation. Israel was told, for example, to resist all other nations and to not allow governments to rule them. 
We, however, are told in Romans chapter 13 to submit to whatever human government we're under is appointed by God because God's people today are not defined nationally. We're defined supernaturally. All those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ worldwide. And so in the new covenant community context, how do we understand this law? Well, the Israelites were not to mourn like those who have no hope, like those who have a weak, inattentive, small God. Yes, they would mourn. And by the way, mourning itself isn't discouraged. But they were to mourn in recognition that Yahweh is their God and he cares deeply for them. They were to mourn with the bigger picture, the bigger view that God was taking care of them and would bring all things to a glorious conclusion one day. And because of this, they could be confident in God's comfort and his presence and that his plan, yes, it's mysterious. Yes, it's painful at times, but his plan would, in fact, yield glorious results in the end, even beyond this life. Let me put it to you this way in our contemporary context. Imagine two funerals are happening at the same time. Funeral number one, a memorial service in a church which proclaims the gospel of Christ. And the deceased was a believer in the Lord Jesus. His family, his friends are weeping and mourning. Yes, they miss him. They're separated from him for now. But there's, there's also strangely an element of victory. And if you've been to any funeral at a memorial service here at Grace Bible Church, you have sensed that. That there is, yes, the weeping in the morning, but there's, there's victory as well. An element of certainty because Christians know that their pain is temporary. And so at this funeral, God is present. He's caring. God is in control. God is glorified. God is honored. God is the center. And at the same time, funeral number two, a memorial service in which there is no gospel hope attended by unbelievers who have no hope in Christ except a false hope that they make up. False hopes such as, well, he's in a better place or we'll all be reunited again or he's watching over us now. But those are false hopes because they have no basis in reality. And they have not been reconciled to God through the cross of Christ and so they're separated from God. In fact, they might even engage in desperate efforts to maintain a connection with the deceased. A desperation, for example, to have the the highest quality casket, the highest quality vault guaranteed to keep moisture out for at least a hundred years. There's nothing wrong with those things inherently, but if that's the best hope you have, that's sad. There's no hope at all. There's no conception of a sovereign God working all things out according to his will because there's no relationship with the one true God. And so... When we weep and when we mourn, we're not the same as the world. And by the way, this particular issue, one agony that many families deal with is a person, very often teenage girls, who cut themselves, who engage in self-cutting. And one of the characteristics of someone who's cutting and inflicting self-harm is that it can be attempt, listen, to get attention, to get the attention of those who care about them. Because of spiritual and emotional hopelessness. This is exactly the reason God said, don't cut. Instead, trust in God and have have hope in the God who loves you and who will pay attention to you and who will give you all the love and the affection that only a perfect loving God can give. And this is through Christ. This makes us now itch toward our final question. 
what New Testament passages explain this principle to the New Covenant community now that we're under the law of Christ? What New Testament passages could we go to? I would maintain that every single principle in the Old Testament will find its equivalent in the New Testament because all the principles God lays out for his people are based in this changeless character. And so what's the principle in the Old Testament? The faithful Israelite was not to mourn as those who have no hope. What are we told in the New Testament? Well, for example, concerning the greatest of all human tragedies, which is death, Paul said this, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. He didn't say don't grieve. He just said that your grieving is tempered with hope, with certainty, with trust. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8, the Apostle Paul said, Yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. I, I love visiting believers in the hospital where their lives are in, in jeopardy. Because across the board, I've seen something that is, that is just almost universal. When somebody is faced with the distinct possibility that this may be their final trip to the hospital, that this may be their, the end of their lives, and I, I ask them, how do you feel about this? With an unbeliever, and I visited unbelievers in the hospital, there's this desperation, we're going to make it through this. We're going to survive. We're going to fight. We're going we're gonna to win this battle again. With the Christian, it's, you know, whatever. <laughs> if, I, if I live, praise God, and I hope that happens, and if I don't, I'm so okay with that. That's our hope. And the same for the family. We, we want mom, we want dad to make it through this. But if they don't, because of the certain hope of heaven, okay, the Lord will help us. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52, very classic. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. And so that's one example, the greatest human tragedy of death. What about just any pain of any kind concerning any trial, any affliction? Ephesians 2 verse 12 speaks of unbelievers as, quote, having no hope and without God in the world. But we do have hope. We have hope in the Lord and the Lord Jesus has promised the believer in Christ in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. So the, the principle of not cutting yourself does carry forward to us. Our first big question, what does the law about self-cutting mean for me as a new covenant believer? It was a symbolic law telling Israel that they don't have to try to get Yahweh's attention When they're grieving, he's full of steadfast love toward them and that we as new covenant believers do not have to grieve as those who have no hope. You see how the principle in God's character maintains itself all the way through Scripture. Well, let's do a second big question. What does the law about tattoos mean for me as a new covenant believer? You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves And then pertaining to both of them, I am Yahweh. And we saw last time that there are 16 paragraphs in chapter 19 that all end with some version of I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, telling us that that's the reason, that's the the principle behind every law. 
So let's go through the same five sub-questions. This will go a little faster because we've already answered some of them. The first question, what kind of law is it? We're still under the same heading of symbolic law. These two laws are together because they deal with the permanent disfigurement of the body for religious reasons. That's why these two are put together. And so we can move quickly to the second question. What is the purpose of this law in Israel's context? The Hebrew uses the word for tattoo, katobet, which just means to write on yourself, to engrave yourself with ink. It was to cut the skin and then insert pigment or dye of some sort. Now, in the ancient Near East, the main reason someone got a tattoo was to identify themselves as part of a group, that they belonged to a group of people. And specifically, in a religious context, a tattoo is to identify someone as belonging to or being a slave of a particular God. But listen, this wasn't just so that other people would know that you were devoted to that particular God. It was meant to be a reminder to the God itself that the God you served was supposed to look at your tattoo and, and kind of go, oh yeah, you follow me. Thanks for the reminder. By the way, all false gods in the Bible sound dumb because they are. It was meant to remind the God, look, see this on my arm? Just letting you know I'm here. It was the same thing as the cutting. It was to get their God's attention. But Israel was to be set apart. They were to be different. They served the one true living God who needs no reminder. He knows who his true followers are. Yes, Israel did have some external signs of their loyalty, most notably circumcision. But circumcision wasn't a means to remind God of their faithfulness. It was an external sign of something internal, right? Deuteronomy 10.16 even reminds Israel to have circumcised hearts. True love, true affection, true change toward the Lord. Now, someone in ancient Israel might say, well, my tattoo represents my faith. But God didn't mandate it. And in fact, he prohibited it. In fact, the true follower of Yahweh wasn't identified by something as simple as a tattoo. That's too easy. That requires no loyalty. That requires no effort. Instead, the true believer was marked by love, by community, by brotherhood, by obedience to the law, by loving their neighbors as themselves. And on top of that, in the context of the entire Pentateuch, which is one document, if you recall, Genesis 1, 26-28 makes it clear that humanity is made in God's image. And in His sovereignty, God is the one who determines how humans will reflect His image. So God mandated that His people, here in verse 28, are not to disfigure themselves in that way. Disfigurement says that God's intention, God's purposes, God's plans are somehow lacking and we need to upgrade, we need to improve on what God created. I could bring us to our third question. What's the universal principle found in this law? What's the universal principle? Well, we've already alluded to it. The, the evidence of a follower of God is not merely in the external, but in the internal and the eternal. Did you catch that? The evidence of a follower of God is not in the external, but in the internal and in the eternal. For example, last time we looked at all of chapter 19, which mandated that the true believer love his neighbor as himself. Why? Out of love for God. 
not just merely out of a fear of repercussions or consequences. And this is where the Old Covenant and the New Covenant really find their greatest common ground. Under the Old Covenant, David prayed in Psalm 51, verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit, where? Within me. Then Isaiah, or Israel rather, gets the promise of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my heart within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Of course, we understand that the law written on the heart is through the regeneration and indwelling of the Holy Spirit who has remade us now to long to be marked, not by cutting, not by tattoos, but marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. Those are the marks of a Christian. We've been changed. And so our fourth question then, how do we understand this law in a contemporary context? How do we understand it today? The paradigm God established in this verse is that he determines what the marks of a true follower are and how we're to reflect and honor the fact that we are image bearers, that we bear the image of God. And so without making an overt law, without being legalistic, without making a rule, a believer, for example, getting the tattoo... And I know many of you have done this. Remember, we grandfathered all your tattoos in from tonight on. If you're getting a tattoo, is this what God has asked for or what he has required? No, it's not. Let me give you an example that makes a little bit more sense, I think, in our context. If someone wanted to tattoo his wife's name on himself, As an act of love, not only is that disfiguring the body made in God's image, but that's not what God required. That's not the sign of love. What is the sign of love? 1 Peter 3, 7, live with your wife in an understanding manner. Any husband can ask their wife. uh, I'll give you two choices. A, I can get a tattoo with your name on it, or B, I can live with you in an understanding manner. Every woman's going to take B because it's what matters. There's substance to it. Yes, under the new covenant, our freedoms are great and wide and broad. But consider what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And could I say this? And this is a matter of wisdom for you. A tattoo or wearing a cross or some other sort of external indicator requires no follow-up. It requires no daily dependence on the Lord. It requires no striving after holiness. Getting an external indicator proves nothing about your faith. And I, I've known new believers who the first thing they do is they go get a new tattoo. I've got 700 of them. Number 701 is going to be a cross. Great. That's fine. But it proves nothing. What is the proof of your faith? According to the Bible, it is persevering to the end in holiness. That's proof of faith. One more question then, what New Testament passages explain this principle to the New Covenant community, to to the church, now into the law of Christ? Or can I put it this way? How does God want Christians to be marked? How does God want Christians to be marked? We're to be marked by suffering. 
Paul told the Galatian church in Galatians 6.17, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The evidence of my following after him, because I have been marked by whipping and by imprisonment and by beatings. I have the marks of Christ on me. We're marked by suffering. We're to be marked by obedience. We're to be those that the world looks at and says, you follow a different standard. You are different than me. And in fact, 1 Peter tells us to obey to such an extent that the unbeliever glorifies God, meaning comes to faith in Christ. We're to be marked by love. The unbeliever should get to know the believer and and say, there's something about you that's just loving and kind and sweet. We're to be marked by humility. That we're not always the heroes of our own story. That we are taking second place, that we are self-deprecating, that we give all glory to God and none to ourselves. We're to be marked by submission. The, the, the Christian life is, at the very base, a life of submission. Everybody submits to authority. We're to be marked by body life in the church. That the true Christian loves the church of Jesus Christ and we fellowship with one another, we work together, we pray together, we minister together, we worship together. We're marked by suffering, we're marked by obedience, marked by love, marked by humility, marked by submission, marked by body life in the church. Anyone can do something external. That's easy. Only the true believer has a life and a character which is proven in our growing transformation. 2 Corinthians 3.18, classic verse. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Okay, for all of you who have tattoos, you don't, you don't have to hide them. That's fine. You don't need to worry about that. But I would exhort all of us. Here's what Jesus said marks us. Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, I feel that I should be honest with you. I confess I intend to get a tattoo. In fact, I intend to get three tattoos. But there's only one person that I will trust to be my tattoo artist And that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Here's what he promised to the faithful in Revelation 3 verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will, same word in Greek, write on him the name of my God. Tattoo number one. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. Tattoo number two. And my own new name. Tattoo number three. Now, whether that's actual marking or not, I don't know. But this is God the Son marking you forever as belonging to him. That's the tattoo I want. That's the only one that matters. But listen, that tattoo was not made with ink. It's made in blood the blood of Christ, to purchase your redemption such that you can be marked with the name of God forever and ever in his presence. And somehow I think those markings will make the fun little cross that you had put on your shoulder blade kind of seem ridiculous. 
So let's be marked by the character of Christ and not worry about the externals. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you and praise you that because your character never changes, because your, your worth, your value, your might, the very essence of who you are has always been the same from eternity past into eternity future. And even the designations past and future are, are human constructs that you created for us so that we can exist in a universe that is governed by time. But you're certainly not governed by time, by anything that is less than eternal. And because your character is eternal, because your holiness is eternal, the principles which form the foundation for a law which no longer legally applies to us certainly continues to spiritually and morally apply to us. And so, Lord, I pray for each of us that we would be concerned about being marked with the very character of Christ and being recognized by the world as those who have something different and that we might give you glory through lives marked by humility and love and kindness such that the unbeliever would ask, how might I receive those qualities as well and come to faith in Christ and receive the grace that is freely offered and freely given. Lord, I pray for a man or a woman here tonight or hearing this message who has not yet been marked by Christ, I pray that they too would submit to the Lord and be marked as baptism symbolizes by his death, be marked by his resurrection, be marked by the cleanliness and the purity from sin which we receive in forgiveness that we receive from you. We thank you and we praise you, asking you to help us to walk in the manner worthy to be marked by the Lord Jesus. And we praise you in his name. Amen.